0: Before we begin, a quick warning. This episode has descriptions of violence, torture, and strong language throughout.
1: So the deal goes down like this There's a guy in a hire car at dusk on the Turkish Syrian border with 2 million euros in a bag stuffed under the seat. He's there to hand the money over to an Islamic State go-between in return for the life of a hostage.
2: I had basically been uh, told to be at a specific point, at a specific time, carrying more than 2 million euros in cash. It was getting darker as I got there. It was uh, supposed to happen at 8 o'clock.
0: The man doing this deal... One night in the summer of 2014, by the Syrian border, with a bag stuffed full of euros, was the man we're calling Arthur, the Danish hostage negotiator who we heard from earlier in episode three. Back then, he was one of the people who'd been hired to look for James Foley, but now he was desperately trying to save the life of another hostage held by ISIS.
1: He has been employed by the family of a young Danish photographer, Daniel Rye Ottesen, who was 25 years old when he was abducted in the northern Syrian town of Azaz. Arthur has been working ever since to locate Daniel, to open communications with the hostage takers, and to pay a ransom in return for Daniel's life. And this is the culmination of his work.
2: It was a moment where a lot of effort and a lot of time and a lot of agony and pain kind of came to a point where this is all or nothing. This is the one shot we have to actually get this guy home.
1: So he waits there in his car, and uh, he told me he felt quite awkward about it because it's not a place he would normally wait in a car.
2: Every move I made, the way I park my car, the way I, I go about, I was just trying to blend in and of course that was kind of difficult because I was kind of a odd one out.
1: He's waiting there and the odd group of Syrian refugees come out of the war zone and kind of pass him and look at like, "Well, what the strange guy waiting in the clean car is in the middle of nowhere?" You get the odd patrol of Turkish forces passing him as well. And then he sees a couple of guys on a motorbike.
2: It was a hairy moment as uh, the dark fell. And I noticed there was one motorbike that came by. Then it came back about five or ten minutes later at a slower pace. And I thought, well, that was odd.
1: They pass him once, twice, three times, and each time Arthur's getting more and more short. These are the guys, they're casing me before coming up, actually, for the handover. It's quite an exposed area. He can be watched to see... Basically, is he being tailed, or has he got someone there as backup who's going to try and make a problem for the Islamic State guys who have come to collect the money?
2: They stopped behind my vehicle. It was a motorcycle, 250, not a big one, enough to carry two, and there were two jihadis on it wearing a black outfit, and the one who was sitting behind the driver got off it went straight to me at that time i was out of the car showing my hands showing that i was not armed in the communication we had agreed on a safe word or a password to identify each other
1: the code word is given approved arthur opens the door of the car reaches under the seat gets the bag with the two million euros cash inside gives it to the guy the jihadist they shake hands Jardis gets back on his bike. No word is spoken other than the code word. The two men on the motorbike with €2 million in cash then disappear into the darkness. The deal's been done.
2: That was it. That was the exchange.
1: That is June the 17th, 2014. Daniel Ryerson is held in Raqqa at that time, with John Cantley and the remaining British and American hostages. It's a further two days before he is released. And that was how the deal was done, to save the life of the last Western hostage to make it out from Islamic State captivity that year.
0: It was an audacious move, and it worked. Arthur had secured Daniel's freedom, but for John Cantley and James Foley, there was no such luck. They were still being held hostage by the Islamic State in Syria. In this episode, we'll hear from Daniel and some of the other Western hostages who were the last people to share a cell with John and James to find out what it was like in captivity, and why Isis chose John to be the hostage who survived. But first, a reminder of last time on Last Man Standing.
1: This black BMW X5 cruising, the same direction as us, slowly, And it's immaculate, it's gleaming. Whenever you see a gleaming car in war, it's trouble. I knew immediately, I was like, absolutely, fucking shit's going to go down now.
0: When Anthony was violently kidnapped in Syria, he was abruptly confronted by one of the enduring questions in John Cantley's story. Just how far would you be prepared to go to save your life?
1: There's a whole lot of thoughts that you don't really have before come to mind. You're like, can I pick up, if I get the chance, a big stone and smash the brains out of a sleeping guard if it comes down to it? Can I kill somebody to get out of this?
0: I'm Manveen Rana and I'm joining the veteran war correspondent for The Times, Anthony Lloyd, for this special series on his long-running investigation to find out what happened to John Cantley. This is Last Man Standing from The Times and The Sunday Times, Episode 5, Freedom is for Other People. Daniel Rye Ottersen, a young Danish photographer, was covering the refugee crisis in Syria when he was kidnapped in 2013.
3: I was held for 13 months and I met John Cantley and also James Foley about two months into my captivity.
0: He first met John and James in a small makeshift prison in a hospital in Aleppo in rather odd circumstances.
3: We were taken to the toilet like four times a day. And at some point uh, when I took off my blindfold, after the door into this toilet was closed, I suddenly stood in front of of two guys. I remember seeing James. He looked very happy, like um, to see other people where I saw John being a little bit quieter, standing behind him. Not that he was afraid, not at all, but he somehow felt, even though we were in this completely stressful situation, he still couldn't put the facts aside that we were in this
0: shithole. The prison in Aleppo was where we last left John and James with a former jihadi and now Belgian DJ DJ. Yoyuan Bontenk. Yoyuan was allowed to leave, but all the other prisoners were moved to Raqqa, the new headquarters of the Islamic State. Life for the hostages was about to get worse.
1: By the time they get to Raqqa, the Beatles reappear on the scene to guard the Western hostages and those Western hostages who have never met the Beatles before get told by those who have encountered the British Islamic State members, your life is now going to be hell, because these guys like to brutalise and torture us, not, it seems, as Daniel Rice said, because they've been specifically ordered to maltreat us, but because they enjoy maltreating us.
0: The Beatles were a group of Islamic State fighters from West London were as famed for their brutality as they were for their British accents. John and James had been tortured by them before, and now they'd been moved to a cramped, airless room, along with almost 20 others, and the Beatles were back in charge. Anthony has tracked down a number of the hostages who were in that room and lived to tell the tale.
1: When the Beatles were looking after the hostages, their treatment was always deplorable. For a start, whenever the Beatles came into the room, the hostages had to face the wall. Random beatings would occur on a daily basis. Mock executions, either with a sword or a knife, were also commonplace.
4: The only strategy is a survival strategy. I mean, you cannot fight them straight because they're stronger and you are defeated. I mean, you are a prisoner, you're not free.
0: That's Didier Francois a French journalist who'd also been kidnapped in Syria and who was brought to the same cell in Raqqa. A fun, jocular character. At 53, he was the oldest hostage in the group. They want to kill you, they kill you. They don't have any
4: pity, they don't care. So the only thing you can do is try and find some strategies. In the meantime, you're basically living in in a nest of rattlesnakes and basically every move you can do, they can bite. So you have to be fully concentrating on avoiding to be beaten.
1: You never quite knew whether you were going to get fed, how much you were going to get fed, or whether if you did get fed, that might be it for a few days. I mean, at one point, they were told very quickly to move to a truck outside, to move from one prison to another. And James Foley, certainly they had a, a whole lot of dates with them. James Foley was just hiding these dates in his kind of prison overalls to take as many dates as they could with them case they were hungry again. Then there was the separate interrogation phases when prisoners would be taken out individually to be interrogated at various times. Interrogation, which would often involve torture. Then there was, you know, the visits to the bathroom. Oh, my God, that sounded a nightmare in itself. You were taken out to the bathroom for very limited periods of time by the guards. If you dawdled in the loo, you'd get a beating, you know. Other people were being beaten as well. In some of the locations they were held, you could hear people kind of screaming at night. Didier Francois described being escorted out to the loo one morning after they'd heard someone being savagely beaten in the corridor to find a beheaded corpse outside the room. And the corridor awash with blood, he had Um. to wade through it to go to the loo. Life was, uh, was hell.
4: It was uh, misery. They were tortured. I mean, those guys are nasty bastards and, and they're wicked. They were killing uh, prisoners. Uh, and in the morning when we opened the door to go to the toilet, uh, there was uh, the body lying beheaded and, and the blood and we had to walk in it. So this is in this environment that you have to make your choices and your decisions.
1: Often in very claustrophobic conditions, mm. often with little light, and nothing really much to do except wonder if they're going to get fed or the sound of someone approaching the door. What would that mean? Would that mean you're about to get beaten? Would that mean you're about to get humiliated? You know, the torture of some of these men had been in the original days, certainly. So severe Daniel Ride tried to take his own life and he was hung up in chains to escape the sort of pain and degradation of it all.
3: I, I had a really difficult time because at the beginning of my captivity I was tortured and I tried to hang myself and I was really pushed down by the guards and I was by myself.
0: For Daniel, meeting the other hostages was a lifeline. Suddenly, in this crowded room, he had company and support.
3: I kind of needed to build myself up bit by bit and I think John was one of the most important persons doing that build up because um I could go over to him and and I say you know i I feel really shit right now is that because I am an idiot and he said no no daniel it's it's because you are strong
0: remarkably it was John cantley that Daniel would turn to for help.
3: everybody in the room could talk to John and he couldn't He didn't want to talk to everybody, but he didn't want to fight with them either, you know. The bad guys are the guys outside the door.
0: John and James had been held longer than all the other hostages. And we can start to see how John was coping. He was not
3: really good at small talking. He didn't want to talk about photo equipment. He didn't want to talk about his girlfriend, his life outside, you know. Everything that made him think about everything he lost.
0: This is a John Cantley that we're not really used to, having last seen him as the brash reporter recklessly making jokes with jihadis. But what do we really know about John Cantley? How did he become the last man standing? The one who was chosen by ISIS to live. We'll be back in just a moment. But if you're interested in this podcast, you might also want to try Stories of Our Times, the daily news podcast that brings together the best journalism from the Times and the Sunday Times. One story told in depth every day. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.
6: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. A to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash
5: switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
6: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.
0: In Raqqa, in a small, crowded room, 19 hostages were being held by one of the most savage and cruel groups in the Islamic State, the Beatles. We'll find out what was happening inside that room by hearing from a number of the hostages who were there. But before we do, to understand what happened to John Cantley and what made him the great survivor. We really need to know what he was like before he became a hostage. Anthony has spent months interviewing John's friends and colleagues.
1: The John Candy that I'd met on those few occasions in 2011, 2012, and been rather put off by the kind of loud, brash exterior, there was far more to him than that. Hmm. Well, First of all, he'd come to journalism slightly late. John was born in Winchester in 1970. His dad was a former Scots Guards officer. He had two siblings and he had quite a slalom career path. He started off as a game tester for Sega. He knew a lot about computers. He knew a lot about games. And his nickname actually was Sonic after, you know, the Manic Hedgehog character. But then he moved on to get into journalism working for bike magazines. He was always... Bike magazines? Yeah. Sort of
0: motorbikes or...?
1: Motorbikes. He was crazy about bikes. He liked the speed. John took the most incredible journeys on bikes. And in fact, in 2008, he acted as official photographer, which was the role that he very much, I think, created for himself on a 1,500-kilometre bike ride across Africa, so-called Enduro Africa. It was charity. It was a race with... Princes William and Harry, uh,
6: with the little headlights on these bikes, uh, dusty road.
1: This really worked for him for a time. He liked risk. He liked thrill. Journalistically, he developed quite an array of talents. He could shoot. He could shoot video. He could edit. He could present. And is he
0: good at the presenting?
1: John had the gift of the gab, yeah. He knew how to make things quite exciting. And I've looked at loads of his clips from when he was doing a series called Bikes Aloud.
2: Why do we still need a piece of old dead cow? as the ultimate in motorcycling protection. I mean, after all, we've got space age material. Why leather still? Well, it's the best and still most natural way of protecting your ass...
1: In some of them, you can see there's a kind of Cantley throw-in. It's an interesting device of making something a bit more exciting. For example, the infamous video when he's being towed down the road
0: in a set of bike leathers. Now, in this video, John Cantley has found a novel way of testing the resilience of his bike leathers. You can see him hanging onto a rope that's attached to a speeding car and being dragged across the tarmac while wearing them. As you can see,
6: the leathers are still doing their job perfectly here. And if I do a bit of freestyle, oh, it's getting warm around the crotch area. <laughs> Woo! Ah, uh, yeah, we'll go for the big swing out. Yeah! You see how the body armor. Oh, it's getting warm! Oh, it's getting warm! Ah! Oh, baby, that feels good! Oh, baby! Woo!
1: It's ideas like that which make something look a little cooler, a little bit more exciting. I learned that John's attitude for risk was fairly negatively affected by the amount of crashes he had in which he would come off a bike and be fine afterwards. And particularly Simon Bowen, who was one of his biker mates, they worked together, described to me a really full-on crash that John had had on a bike into the front of a car in which John had smashed into the windscreen head first, bounced off over the top, ended up standing up.
2: The bike was destroyed, and I immediately stopped, ran over to him, and he was already standing up. All that had happened was that his sunglasses had come off, but there was a piece of windscreen stuck right there in his nose, and that was it. And at that point, I looked at him, and he looked at me, and he said, I think it's official I am actually invincible.
1: Now, that sounds funny. I mean, that was—it it is funny. It is funny. It also sounds quite classic John Cantley, that there were these series of incredibly narrow squeaks that would have injured many, many people that John seemed to bounce out of. But I also think, from what I've learned, that John did start getting the impression that he was kind of bulletproof.
0: In some ways, it seems that so many aspects of John, the war photographer, were really forged in the biking world. Anthony has been speaking to one of his oldest friends from his biking days.
1: Ollie Tennant was another man who got to know John Cantley through the biking world when they first started working together on a bike magazine. This was in the late 90s. Ollie was a few years older than John, was principally a photographer, but also was in the motorbikes. I kind of heard of John before I met him. His kind of reputation preceded him. There was this, you know, kind of rustle through the industry that there was this kind of wild child. Was he a wild child? Uh, For sure. He was young and extremely bumptious. But at the same time, he obviously had a huge amount of talent and was fun to be around. They spent a lot of time hanging out together over many years... And Ollie advised John more and more on photography and was quite a soundboard for John as John talked about leaving the bike world and getting into what he called real journalism, reporting on wars. And the picture that Ollie Tennant painted was of a very sensitive and reflective man. So there were these many, many different sides to John Cantley. The John that I knew was... uh... Potentially different to the one that a lot of other people would know. The thoughtfulness and care that a lot of people didn't see, especially when it came to personal relationships. And, um, he did care a lot.
0: As John moved from the motorbike world to war zones, he seemed to take his appetite for risk with him.
1: Friends who worked with him on the front lines in places like Libya would talk about his own aptitude for risk as being something way beyond what they were comfortable with. And I'm talking about friends who are basically quite comfortable with risk-taking anyway. So, for example, Tom Coghlan, formerly a journalist for The Times, friend of mine, friend of John Canley's, he first met John pretty intensively in Libya during the culminating battle, really, in the Libyan Revolution.
6: I met John on a street in Sirte. There was a huge gun battle going on, and it was some of the most intense violence I've ever seen. In the midst of this total chaos, I ran into this skinny English dude wearing the most ridiculous flak jacket I'd ever seen. It was like a, a kind of really old British military thing, and it had a kind of bulletproof plate that was about the size of a postage stamp on it. And he said, I'm a photographer for the Sunday Times. Do you want any pictures? And I said, yeah, great. I was taking a tremendous risk going as far as I had. Anyway, John was already there and then he headed off even further up the road. He'd gone up so far that he could hear the other side, the Gaddafi lot, shouting to each other and you know, coordinating their fire and stuff. And I, I thought, wow, that's, that's a pretty brave guy. Um, So, yeah, that was the first time I I met him, and we we became friends pretty quickly. He really liked John.
1: More interestingly to me than how Tom described John Canty on the front line were a couple of other comments he, he made. He said that he recalled John offending a journalist one day unintentionally, but by saying something clumsy and crass, which had upset this other journalist, and then that John reflected on it and was upset with himself.
6: He was mortified, and he went off and he sat on his own very quietly, and he just sort of put his head down, and and I remember feeling really sorry for him, actually, because I felt this is someone who's said something and, and it just sort of comes out wrong. I think John did a lot of that. He could be really sarcastic and scathing and really upset people. But I think he was sensitive and I think he was really complex. He recognised
1: his own propensity to be clumsy and the likelihood that it would probably happen again. It was something he was obviously uneasy with.
0: When we started the series, you, know, you, you described your impression of him, having met him in war zones, on the job... And you thought he was a bit of a prick?
1: Yeah, I thought he was a bit of a prick when I first met him.
0: But sort of hearing from his friends, and you know, even Mustafa, the fixer who worked with him in Syria, you start to get a slightly different perspective. I mean, Mustafa, who watched him take a lot of risks and was very angry at him for taking them, still seemed to be very fond of him.
1: Mustafa maintains an incredible affection for John.
4: He's a really funny guy. Everyone loves him everyone you know all my friends when the first time met him directly he talked to them like started making jokes and he's like really funny you know and everyone loves him i remember in finnish everyone asking me about johnny not james but james he was like so quiet but he's so kind at the same time but john everyone asking me about johnny
1: where's johnny do you think That was the reason why he survived the longest out of the British and American hostages. Yes, maybe yes. Because he knows how to control the people
4: around him. Many times I I saw this uh, strategy he used. I told you, a lot of my friends, they're asking about Johnny, not James. Why? Because Johnny, he makes them love him.
0: John Cantley was clearly a complex character, brash and bumptious, at times awkward, at times charming. How much of that character survived in captivity? Anthony asked some of the hostages.
1: I remember particularly Javier Espinoza, a very well-known Spanish correspondent who was abducted in 2013 and held for a time with John. Javier was someone who had met John in Libya, where he described John as endlessly kind of energetic and leaping around and quite macho, wearing a kind of bandana. He said that John had gone by the time they remet as hostages.
2: He was a brave guy who tried to escape a couple of times from these people, who was beaten severely, who was tortured really, really hard. Once he told me they were killing us, four weeks. A lot of really nasty stuff. When I met him, it was clear that they had broken them because of this beating.
1: The John he encountered was often down. That energy had gone. He said John was broken by the extreme torture he had suffered. But then you get Daniel Rye, the Danish photographer, describing not John's low mood, but actually that John had mastered a sort of flatlining attitude to long-term captivity.
3: He was never really happy and uh, he was never really sad. He had this thing he told me that he said to try to flatline and try to be in the same mood all the time. And he lived by that. So he became some kind of strong figure inside the room because he never went berserk. He never yelled. He never started crying. He was just keeping everything a bit
0: more calm. Gone was the brash John. And in his new role as the calm, resilient hostage, he found himself having to pull the others together.
1: John, at one point, recreated part of his Enduro Africa trek. Daniel Wright described this to me. For three hours, he took the hostages in their minds just out of the cell and across Africa on this bike trek.
3: I remember he stood up and he was like, hey guys, take your blankets, fold them and roll them and then sit on it like it's... a." A bike. Then you take your water bottle, use it for a handle. And then we were sitting like students in a classroom and and then he stood as the teacher and started to talk as we were sitting on something that could look like a motorbike. It was so simple, but all of us were like completely into his story for three hours because he's a, such a good storyteller.
1: I mean, can you wow. imagine like the kind of flight of some imprisoned bird, it must have been for their minds. And that to was be John, able to I remember stained
0: that for three hours.
1: Yeah, and having seen a lot of John's kind of videos from when he was presenting bike shows, I mean you could see the guy yeah, he could have done that. He could have done that. There was something John Cantley clearly had in that he could capture people's imagination.
0: And at this point, inside the prison, it's not just the other hostages who've spotted John's talent. The Beatles have spotted it too. John's fate is being rewritten.
3: They saw a potential in him. They saw that he can tell a story like nobody else. He's a narrator, he's a really, really good anchor. He's a person that can keep somebody's attention. So I just think that they saw a great potential.
0: But would that be enough? To save John Cantley. We'll have more in a moment, but a quick reminder this series is based on an ongoing investigation, and since we started, we've been astonished by some of the messages we've received from all over the world from people who either knew John Cantley or who have information about what happened to him after he was kidnapped. We're following up on some of these leads and we'll bring you an update as soon as possible. But if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can either tweet Anthony or me directly or email us at storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. The Danish photographer, Daniel Rye Ottesen, had been tortured horrifically in prison. But he kept himself going by imagining the day when they'd all leave.
3: We hoped uh, deeply inside of ourselves that we will be released in some kind of mass exchange at the same time, because then we could share this magical moment together. And we spoke about it quite a lot, what we would do. And... We kind of have this funny thing that if we get released, and nobody should call their families the first uh, day, the first day we should just get shit faced and eat until we throw up uh, just to celebrate together. And then we will call our families afterwards. And everybody, of course, knew that that would not be, be the case, but um, we talked about that.
0: But by the spring of 2014, that dream was fading. Several of the hostages had already been released. The room, that had been crammed with 19 men, was now thinning out. But freedom, it seemed, was only ever for other people. For Daniel, it was tough watching Mark Marginedas, a Spanish journalist, become the first hostage to be released.
3: It was a really strange uh, experience we were so happy for Marcus, but then again, thinking about him going home to his family, going home and seeing his mom and dad and siblings and colleagues was it it was really really tough, also because he was taken like nine months after James and John, who was the first who was caught so Just that was a little bit unfair.
0: John and James would watch another 11 hostages, including Daniel, leave, while knowing that although they'd been there the longest, they had no hope of being released.
1: So part of the great injustice of of John Cantley's story and of the story of the other American British hostages is that their nations prohibited... The payment of ransom to terrorist organizations. The European hostages were released either because their government was quite happy to negotiate with the terrorist organization and pay ransom if required, or in some other cases, like Denmark's case, the Danish government, though it wouldn't negotiate directly with the terrorist organization itself, it would not prohibit families, in this case Daniel Ryotsen's family, from opening private channels of communication, raising private funds and paying for Daniel's life themselves.
0: And that's what happens when Arthur goes to the border and meets these Islamic State fighters and hands over the money. I mean, that can't be easy for a family.
1: Can you imagine the strain on that family? This is this not a wealthy family. You have to raise two million euros. And it's just not just raising the funds either. It's a nightmare trying to open up negotiations with the right hostage-taking group. So they hire Arthur. And finally, privately raised funds, raised by Daniel's family, are handed to Islamic State in return for Daniel's life and freedom. And Daniel Rye was pretty lucky. That could have gone very, very badly wrong. The clock was ticking, which is why Daniel was the last Western hostage to be released. Once he went, anybody who was still there was murdered or disappeared.
0: So for those American and British hostages, they've watched the people who are being held with them get released one by one, yeah. And they know there is no help coming.
1: James, according to other hostages who were released, remained optimistic that somehow his country would negotiate in some way on his behalf. John Cantley, no. John was very clear that no one was going to pay ransom for him, that the British policy would not allow any negotiation with Islamic State. He seemed very fixated on that right from the start.
0: James was somehow still optimistic, while John knew there was no help coming. They wouldn't be freed. And for the first time since they were kidnapped together in 2012, when their fates seemed to be inextricably linked, John and James are now set on very different paths.
1: What's interesting is at
0: this stage,
1: John wasn't tortured as much, certainly not as much as he had been, but even as much as the others. I mean, the Beatles, they had a relationship with James Foley because James had been held the longest, equal with John, but they hated James right from the start.
3: John was just the one that maybe they felt most comfortable with. I think that they knew that they were going to execute Jim. They told us all the time that, Jim, you will be the first one that we kill. You are the most evil. You come from America. So I think there was some kind of deeper connection from them towards John, maybe because they started already back then seeing him as a, a future colleague.
1: Their relationship with John Canley was different to their relationship with James Foley. And particularly Mohammed Mwazi. The Beatles member, who is to become known to the world later as Jihadi John, Mm. he had some specific interest in John Cantley. Now, for all of this terror group, whether they knew much about the media and communications before, they certainly got to know a lot about it when they were members of Islamic State. Because for Islamic State, the message was as important, sometimes more so, than the acts of terrorism. Mm. One has to bear that in mind with what followed. Mwazi, as Didier Francois described to me, would have this thing of he'd come into the room and enjoy beating the hostages. But sometimes when he'd had enough of getting off on doing that, then he would stop and he would get John Cantley to do a routine of mimicry. John was a great mimic and he could imitate kind of tropes of journalists, you know, sports journalists or news anchors or whatever.
4: Every time Emwazi was into the room after the usual beating, he was always then after asking John to uh, imitate uh, or to mock uh, uh, the old school uh, war reporter on the ground with with a strong accent. And and, well, I'm I'm really terrible at it. but, But John was... Absolutely, incredibly funny and and sharp and and good at doing it. He was amazing. He could change accents and make stories from nothing. He was an amazing actor, an amazing actor, really. And you could feel from that something, you know, the mechanisms, the little things were turning in in a moisy mind.
1: Several of the other hostages said to me, it was clear they were beginning to think of something else that may be in store for John Canley.
0: They suddenly see him as an asset.
1: Well, a potential asset in the kind of dark hinterland of Islamic State thought, where messaging is as important as the act of terror. Does it not then become really attractive to them to think, I don't know what, we'll murder everybody on camera, but we'll keep one. The one who is a skilled presenter, who's got the gift of the gab, who we have something akin to, a respect for, on account of how he's handled himself. He's very articulate. He's also angry because no one's negotiating for him and he knows that no one's going to negotiate for him. Mm. He's a journalist. Why don't we keep one alive to advocate our message? That is a a very dark and sophisticated and actually unique progression in terrorist messaging. And that's exactly what happens. But the seeds of it are the hostages' note. And the seeds of it lie in Mohammed Emwazi's relationship, if that's the right word, with John Canley.
0: John, although he's lost hope at this stage, he knows the British government's policy on hostages, he does really want to get home.
1: John really wants to get home. There's no doubt. Daniel describes absolutely clearly John wanting to get out.
3: He wanted to survive. He wanted to come home. He wanted to try to see his dad alive before he passes away. He wanted to see his nieces and nephews. He had a lot of dreams going back.
1: John wants to survive. He absolutely wants to survive. Now, for him, escape is no longer an option. He's been so badly tortured. But he's a smart guy He's handling himself as best he can in pretty hideous conditions. And, you know, he's trying to live.
0: We know that John is being treated slightly differently to some of the other hostages, certainly to James Foley. We know that he's being marked out by the Beatles, which he must be slightly aware of. I mean, the question we keep coming back to, you know, is does John Cantley end up turning? Is that how he survives? Do you get a sense at this stage from what you've heard from the other hostages? Did they think he might have turned?
1: I think the answer to that question is best provided by Daniel Rye. Daniel Rye, who is the last Western hostage to be released, who is the last hostage to see John Canley and to emerge and talk about it. Daniel Rye describes John at that stage as absolutely not having turned. Quite the contrary.
3: If you can ask me, so does John ever sympathise with these guys, I can tell you, fucking no. If there was anybody who hated these guys, it was John.
1: John, as he said goodbye to Daniel, as Daniel was told he was going to be freed and was taken out of the shared cell, John says to him,
3: Daniel, can you please try to tell whoever you speak to from Britain, that if they ever get the opportunity to bump the shit out of us, do it, because I don't want to be used as propaganda for these assholes.
1: Wow. Every time I've listened to that, you know, I felt the hair stand up on my arms. And you don't get a much stronger expression from a captive than that to repel the notion they might have turned. Basically, we're done for. Tell them to bomb the shit out of us. I don't want to be used as propaganda for these assholes.
0: So how did John Cantley go from that to this?
2: I am a prisoner. That I cannot deny. But seeing as I've been abandoned by my government and my fate now lies in the hands of the Islamic State, I have nothing to lose.
0: That's next time on Last Man Standing. Last Man Standing is a Stories of Our Times production for The Times and The Sunday Times. This series is based on an investigation and interviews conducted by Anthony Lloyd war correspondent at the times it's co-presented and executive produced by me manveen rana the lead producer is poppy damon the producer is matthew Wareham. story editing is by joe sykes at samizdat audio sound design and original music is by tom birchall and the executive producer of stories of our times is kate ford